This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you could join me today for the Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Broken Hill. Coming up, 10 years after Saputo entered the Australian dairy industry, the latest cuts to the cheese packaging facility at Malel in the southeast, among other things. Another factory in Victoria was also closed this week. It has dairy farmers wondering what's next. We're only talking at this stage about their processing works and we have no idea what's to become of their uh, milk suppliers, their farmer suppliers. And so that's a probably more direct interest. More on the reactions to the changes Saputo have made to uh, the dairy industry coming from the southeast soon. Also, I'll tell you what natural capital is. You may have heard the term, but not sure what it is. I'll have more on that soon. But first up, South Australia has seen a bit of a slow uptake of carbon farming, but a new roadmap aims to change that. Now, carbon farming is about increasing the amount of carbon stored in the soil and vegetation to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions or or sequester some of those greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, The state government has been working on a roadmap. The Primary Industries Minister, Claire Scriven, can explain what's been released. I think carbon farming is uh, a real opportunity. We don't have a huge take-up of it here in South Australia, but it does have the uh, opportunity to increase agricultural productivity and profitability, uh, improve the resilience of farming enterprises, so that's good things such as drought and climate change, and provide opportunities for diversified revenue streams. Uh, by engaging with the carbon markets. But for a lot of enterprises, um, there's more information that's needed. Information is really key so that people can be making the right decisions uh, about their their future activities. Uh, So it's really important to have this roadmap. One of the other issues, of course, is uh, having continued market access. There is a lot of uh, movement, particularly in some international markets and particularly in Europe, uh, for showing your, your green credentials and so having this carbon roadmap will help people to, to navigate what they need to do to realise all of those benefits that we're talking about. What are some of the key steps to the roadmap? Yeah, so there are four key pillars that are, uh, are being used to address the challenges. So that's to progress the research, innovation and market development, building knowledge and skills, that's a really important component, uh, and then engaging and, and partnering, making sure that we're working in collaboration with industry because this is a really an opportunity for government and the private sector to work together to address the challenges uh, and take advantage of opportunities in the expanding carbon farming uh, issues and, and carbon farming market. It says as part of the roadmap, policy and regulation has been identified as an impediment to to slow or prevent the development of some carbon farming and limit the nature and scale of some of the, the carbon market activities. That's an area where you work in. How are you planning to change that? So I've been working with my, my colleague, Minister Susan Close, the Minister for Environment, so that we can look at 
body areas can be streamlined in terms of that. Um, another really important part of this roadmap is that there's a number of initiatives which haven't necessarily been tried on a large scale in South Australia. And so if we're going to be able to realise the benefits, then people want to have uh, information that's really contextualised for South Australia for the, the local conditions. So that's another really important part of this. Is there a timeline for the roadmap or a way to actually measure its success? So uh, what we've done is sent the roadmap to, to stakeholders. Uh, obviously, we'll be keen to have uh, feedback about uh, how useful it is and what people want to see as the, the next steps in terms of supporting them for that. Uh, it will be the, sort of the, the usual analysis down the track as to how useful it's been and what improvements we can make. There's still a lot of tools required, though, for carbon farming to really take off. How is the government work going to work to, to build the tools within the system to, to allow people to do this? Well, I think there's a number of ways, and they need to be um, individualised for particular circumstances. So, for example, uh, my department had the Growing Carbon Farming Pilot, which is a, a $1 million initiative to encourage carbon farming adoption and to, to build the carbon market in South Australia. Uh, and so that was for projects to help cover things like establishment costs and technical advice and also carbon measurement. So that's a really good example of the sorts of things that are available to help to build that capacity, build that knowledge and provide the tools for those who want to uh, be involved in this to actually adopt those opportunities. Virtual fencing was raised on this program a, a couple of weeks ago. It's not actually allowed in South Australia, but it is one of the things that would be necessary to see things like better access to things like human-induced regeneration through uh, the, the forestry and things like that where it is not possible to do the conventional fencing. Will you be looking at the, the possibility of virtual fencing in, in carbon situations? Yeah, so the virtual fencing is a, a really interesting project and uh, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago we've got trials at the moment at Struan. Uh, now there has been a, a slight disruption to those trials as I understand it because of the fire that happened at Struan last week um, so that's, that's disappointing but so far the information I have is that it is only a disruption, it's not going to set back the project very far but that's, uh, we're waiting for some of the outcomes of those, those trials and that's of course focusing on livestock and that's the, the main issue that people do have is, is in terms of the animal welfare, in terms of the, um, the possibility of using virtual fencing. Uh, so I think all of these things can be, play a part uh, as we go further forward. On a, a different note, uh, this has been a topic ticking along for some time today, but uh, the government has reconfirmed $2.7 million to upgrade the Mount Gambier sale yards? Yes, that's right. It's a really important project for uh, the southeast, but for the livestock industries uh, for our state as well. So we found um, out in the recent federal budget that the Building Better Regions Fund uh, wasn't continuing uh, and that there is a new $1 billion fund from the federal government. So my understanding is that Grant District Council will be applying to that fund. And what we've done is recommitted the $2.7 million that was in our state budget to make sure that that funding is available um, even when they do get that matching funding. So I think it's important that they have that uh, reassurance that the state government commitment is there and that commitment is continuing. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven, who is on Kangaroo Island today. That's where she was speaking from. Now, natural capital and carbon farming are buzzwords at the moment, but are they the same thing? 
Dr. Sue Ogilvie is the Program Director for Farming for the Future and she gave a presentation about natural capital at an event in Melbourne recently and discussed the difference. When we talk about natural capital in agriculture, we're talking about the biological and ecological assets that you manage on a day-to-day basis to produce food, fibre and and beverages. So what we're talking about is... So when we talk about natural capital, we're talking about everything inclusive of remnant native vegetation, inclusive of high-intensity cropping paddocks, um, pastures for livestock, shelter belts that you might implement to provide protection from... Uh, poor weather. So um, depending on how the natural capital of a farm is configured, so depending on the the portfolio of your ecological or biological assets, you're going to be better able to capture rain when it rains or, you know, avoid avoid the damage of flooding when it floods, uh, capture uh, photosynthetic resources. So so, uh, the natural capital portfolio of your farm gives you greater or lesser or different free inputs from nature. Dr Ogilvie says some farmers get carbon tunnel vision and think that natural capital is all about carbon or biodiversity. With the work we're doing in natural capital accounting is just reminding people that natural capital is actually very, very important inputs to production. And in fact, it's the the bulk of natural capital's benefit to agriculture is to provide free inputs from nature to production. The icing on the cake, if you like, is to be able to sell carbon to outside parties or sell biodiversity regeneration to outside parties. But we want to focus on the inputs to to core production, the benefits to farmers, farming families and regional communities. So accounting, as you know, um, has always included agricultural assets as well as produced assets. So your farm accountant and all the accounting standards boards around the world already say, you know, you should make sure that you've got physical records of these assets, you know, the cattle, the sheep, the crops you've got ready for harvest. And of course, your land valuation is is already on your books and on your balance sheet. But what's interesting about this picture is it draws into focus what's missing. So it's all these resources, the soil, the quality of the pastures, the the trees um, and, and, and other vegetation that's providing benefits. So why does all this matter? Dr Ogilvie says there's a few reasons. The increasing importance of trees on farms to provide shade and shelter for crops and livestock, about the increasing understanding that native native grasses and forbs can can improve the resilience and productivity of pastures for livestock. And, and all of those benefits are already considerably in the literature, in the scientific literature, and many farmers have already got a working understanding of, of how valuable those assets are but they're not appearing as visible assets on your balance sheet. And so the people who are lending you money, the people who are trying to ask you to to, um, meet environmental standards, they are sort of assuming because these values are not visible in your, your records that you are not producing them. Dr Sue Ogilvie there, Program Director for Farming for the Future, and that report by Peter Somerville. It's coming up to 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, at the moment, there seems to be a fair few challenges facing the farming sector at the moment. There's floods, particularly in the east, uh, but 
It's starting to have an effect here too. Rising input costs, the shortage of workers continues to be an issue and issues with shipping to export markets. Yet the head of agribusiness at ANZ, Mark Bennett, says the glass is more half full than half empty at the moment. Collectively, Australian Agri continues to produce more value at the farm gate. It's in a healthy position given a period of recovery um, after extended drought. So bigger output, rising land values, improved profitability certainly being seen um, in the sector. So from that point of view, um, in really good shape to manage some variability that we're seeing in whether it's global market disruption or, or the local and general weather um, patterns of the East Coast at the moment in particular, yeah, I think the industry is positioned really well for that. What are the major issues that are on your radar at the moment? It's a critical period for Australian agriculture as the winter crop comes into harvest time and, um, and rain is, is falling at the wrong time for a lot of those crops. It's obviously a big issue through a lot of the river systems as well that we've seen the impact of flooding through housing and also into farmland. So, yeah, it's not very welcome for a lot of farmers right now who are on the edge of perhaps a third um, significantly above average uh, yield result. So we know there are crop losses um, through parts of, of northwestern New South Wales especially and, and back into the floodplains and, and, area, and pockets of Victoria, but... There's still a big harvest there to be got, if that's the right way of saying it, and um, and the yield potential is very strong if only it would stop. So it starts to become a very day-to-day, week-to-week proposition for a lot of crop at the moment. Um, the Western Australian crop is coming off in, in better comparative condition, um, but it will be a bit of a race for a lot of farmers to be able to get machines on the ground when, when crops are ready um, and then to harvest them at quality, because I think... The market will reward dry, clean, protein-rich grains especially and um, because they'll be in short supply uh, in, a, in a global market that's already undersupplied. Is it likely to take until early next year for you to have a better picture as to just how badly grain crops have been affected? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it will be the, the pockets of, of distress and um, individual cases where they really wear a brunt of, of what's going on at the moment. So it's not to say that everybody is perhaps going to take advantage of, of getting through. But overall, um, most probably will, assuming it sort of stopped raining and normalised for a little while. So, yeah, it is a bit of a wait and see, but it probably will be a delayed, long and complicated harvest, which... You know, then brings into question and and um, into the zone of supply chain and ability to store crop, take crop, cart crop, and ship crop. And there's a fair bit's got to go right for that to happen. We've been very good at moving big crops in the last couple of years, but this weather will make that pretty interesting. What's the makeup of agribusiness debt look like at the moment, and is, is it something that banks like the ANZ are concerned about at the moment? Well, it's been going up collectively as a sector. We now owe around $94 billion in farming in Australia. Um, So as that continues to grow at sort of 6 or 7%, um, at face value you would say, well, is that a good thing? Um, But it is against um, a bigger and bigger asset base through rising land values, and we've seen a return to profitability through a very good run of high global commodity prices as well. So... Um, I think people are really well positioned to manage that debt. Um, Interest rates are going up. So for those that 
have a fair amount of debt, they'll be impacted by rising costs, in addition to other costs that we see. And I think the important thing is to probably look through current cycle to a normalised position, if you can imagine one, um, to ensure that there's still the right level of margin and ability to be a good long-term business at, at normal conditions. But right now, if we think of that $94 billion debt, it's owed by around... Um, the 75% of that debt is owed by around 15% of farmers who, who are the large uh, contribution to production in Australia. So it's not every farmer that's impacted by rising interest rates, um, but the larger enterprises are typically well-invested, well-resourced, well-planned. Um, and I think if you looked at that collection of, of agribusiness um, you know, operators in Australia today, they're pretty well-placed to, to mitigate rising interest rates. Some positivity there from Mark Bennett, the head of agribusiness at ANZ, speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. Now, before we get to weather, with the, a bit of activity on the, the radar, we'll get to that soon, but floods are notorious for spreading weeds, which is why the far west of New South Wales is on high alert for alligator weed, because according to the Department of Primary Industries of New South Wales, an invasive species is known as one of the world's worst weeds, and it can be devastating to wetlands, rivers and irrigation systems. In the far west, there's been some concerns and claims in Menindee that alligator weed has been found in the local lake system. Oliver Brown spoke with Western Local Land Services Regional Weed Coordinator Andy McKinnon about their investigation into photos taken of plants growing around the lakes and how there's yet to be a confirmed sighting of alligator weed. No, we haven't had incidents of alligator weed found in the far west to this point. There are areas to the east of us in the Riverina, Barren Box Swamp, and areas of the Murrumbidgee irrigation area have alligator weed in them, and we're monitoring those sites very closely. But we've never had anything appear in the Darling River as far as alligator weed goes. And why do you think it is that it sticks so much to the the east and it hasn't really made its way out west as yet? I'd like to think it's because we're keeping a close eye on it and undertaking control activity in those areas to the east of us in a bid to prevent it getting out here. The most likely way it's going to end up in the far west at the moment would be if it was to overflow out of the Barren Box Swamp complex, which is a swampy area just to the northwest of Griffith, and make its way almost cross-country in shallow channels into the Lachlan River. From there, it'd go down and become a problem in the Balranald area before it was maybe overflow into the... uh, uh, the Murray system, but we've got very little risk of it actually coming down the Darling at the moment. I believe the Namoy River may have some in it, but it is a long, long way away from here at this point in time. Uh, the statewide uh, expert on water weeds uh, with New South Wales DPI, uh, he had a, a close look at the, the photos. He referred them to some other colleagues and he was able to report back that uh, none of the images contained photos of alligator weed. And uh, when you actually got that confirmation, it must have been a bit of a relief. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was very relieved it wasn't alligator weed. We've worked out now that the plants growing in some profusion on the edge of the river, particularly behind the weir structure at the moment, is a variety of rumex. They're called generally dock okay, um, like brown dock and the like. In a season like this, where we've just got so much water everywhere, this is the 
season for fish. It's the season for waterfowl. It's the season for water plants. Most of the plants growing in water in our far western streams at the moment, just native plants doing their thing. There was a second plant identified uh, from the photos and it's called Azola and it's also a native. And uh, it can be problematic at times in that it will coat the surface. But all of our fauna and other accompanying flora, you know, they've been living with Azola blooms for, you know, millennia. These aren't weeds, they're actually water plants. So uh, now looking at, okay, people are concerned that there are a lot of plants growing in the, in the, the Darling River. It's great to have the Darling so full <laughs> and have that much material in it that people are concerned about things growing there. Western Local Land Services Regional Weed Coordinator Andy McKinnon speaking with Oliver Brown there. Now we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology to find out just what was going on last night as well as the forecast coming up. Good afternoon. Yes, uh, hello Cassie. Sorry, it's Tom Bowick. Good afternoon. Uh, That's okay, no worries. (laughs) Um, So that was a crazy lightning storm last night. Just how much lightning was there? Yes, uh, look, um, uh, in the last 24 hours uh, throughout the state and including the waters to the south, there was, uh, yeah, almost 100,000 lightning strikes. So uh, uh, certainly a lot of activity uh, around and there is still some thunderstorm activity uh, around now. So, um, look, the, the reason for this, uh, for the thunderstorms was uh, we, did, we did have this uh, uh, trough of low pressure and uh, a low sort of to the south, another one. So, uh, and ahead of that uh, system, it was... Uh, it was pretty uh, pretty warm yesterday. Got to forty point seven at uh, Udnadatta, and even here in Adelaide, we got to uh, thirty two degrees. Now, uh, as we um, as we uh, move through today, look, there's still some thunderstorm activity at the moment up through the mid north and the Flinders, the south of the northeast pastoral, and also further to the north. And we are expecting there to be some more thunderstorm activity developing over eastern districts for today. Uh, could even be close to the border. Some severe thunderstorm activity is a possibility at this stage, uh, um, with um, yeah the chance of some some damaging wind gusts, even some heavy rain, even a chance of some large hail. So some pretty significant weather in the east now. As we move into the overnight period, uh, the trough will be moving east and that will see the uh, thunderstorms also contracting eastwards and easing back. Um, Then moving into Friday, however, it will be dry initially, but uh, there is another uh, um, system going to be developing over south, uh, sorry, Western Australia, and that will see a chance of some uh, some shower and thunderstorm activity developing over western parts again uh, uh, on Friday. So a bit of a reprieve with a, a small high moving over the state, but then uh, some activity developing in the west again for Friday. Uh, then moving into Saturday, that... Uh, that trough will be that second trough and low will be moving uh, eastwards so uh, uh, that will see the uh, shower and thunderstorm activity becoming more general over the state uh, yet again uh, on on Saturday there so uh, potentially even some severe thunderstorm activity through the sort of northern uh, districts as well uh, on Saturday there so uh, another bout of weather sort of coming in there Uh, then for Sunday that uh, the low pressure system associated with the the, um, 
uh, that the change there or the system will be uh, pretty slow moving uh, and will be moving sort of southeastwards uh, uh, only slowly during Sunday. Probably going to be centred south of Mount Gambia uh, later on Sunday. So that will keep some shower and thunderstorm activity going uh, uh, through through much of the state. Maybe the far northwest will be drying out, but uh, yeah, still uh, activity uh, continuing. Uh, behind the low, uh, the other thing worth noting is uh, quite a cool southwest of Southerly Airstream will be developing over western parts of the state uh, uh, during Sunday. Uh, that then moves us into into Monday. The low will be sort of moving further southeastwards, and that cooler airstream will be extending over much most districts during Monday. Showers will be contracting to back back to just the agricultural area, and thunderstorms will be clearing away. So northern parts of the state will be drying out, uh, and then uh, that trend will continue for Tuesday, Wednesday, with showers continuing to ease in the south and dry conditions in the north. Um, and much cooler, so cooler conditions throughout the state for Tuesday and, and Wednesday um, before we perhaps just start to warm up again on Thursday. Now, the rainfall totals until the end of Monday, we're expecting generally 2 to 10 millimetres, but up to 10 to 20 millimetres uh, for uh, the uh, agricultural area and parts of the northeast pastoral district. There is, however, a chance of some local heavier falls of 20 to 40 millimetres uh, with thunderstorms and heavier showers there, Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Tom Bowick from the Bureau of Meteorology there in the far west of New South Wales. It's going to be mostly sunny in the upper western, but there is a high chance of showers in the east, possibly a thunderstorm around as well, getting down to 18, but during the day it'll reach the low to mid-30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny, again a high chance of showers in the far east and possibly a thunderstorm as well. Overnight it's getting down to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach about 30. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company. I'm Cassie Huff. Once upon a time, wine was synonymous with cork. But about 20 years ago, some renegade Clare Valley winemakers thought there was a better way and the screw cap movement really took off. One of my first jobs actually when I was at university was doing the in-store tastings for mum and dad. So I'd go around to bottle shops and everybody would be asking like, what is this? How do you open it? <laughs> what? Isn't it just for cheap wines? And I was the face on the street (laughs) trying to explain it to the customers. It was about 20 years ago that uh, the change started coming through with screw cups. And I'd be interested to know what you made of it when that started coming through. Did you think it was just low quality wine? Were you thinking it was great to be able to get rid of the the bottle opener or at least not have to hunt around for a bottle opener every time you wanted to open a bottle of wine? I'd love to know what you made of the changes to the uh, screw cap or from pork cork to the screw cap. You can text me on 0467 922 or phone 1300 222891. And... It seems China's insatiable appetite for beef continues to push global exports to new highs and it's partially being put down 
to one kitchen appliance. I'll tell you what that is soon, but first, Matt Coleman has the latest news. Hi, Matt. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, a leading energy academic says that the state government needs to strongly consider getting involved in the state's power sector to help to combat skyrocketing prices. The Productivity Commission says that SA has the highest electricity prices in the national grid. Professor Bruce Mountain from Victoria University says that AGL's dominance in a fairly small market means that cheaper wholesale prices are not adequately being passed. On. The Child Protection Minister says the checks on about 500 children living in high-risk settings should be completed within days or weeks. Police have been tasked with leading the operation. The children were identified as part of a review into the state's child protection system. And beekeepers are being asked to do sampling of hives to check for varroa mite. An outbreak of the potentially devastating mite was detected in New South Wales in June. Since then, restrictions have been placed on the movement of bees into South Australia from the eastern states. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, as I was saying, fed up with their best wines spoiling, 14 winemakers from the Clare Valley banded together two decades ago and unknowingly began a movement that would see the global wine industry change forever. Now, in the early 2000s, only about 2% of Australia's white wines were bottled or under screw crap. Now, that figure sits at 98% 20 years on. So, what have you made of that change? Text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 891. Dimitria Panagiotaris thought she would uh, go back to some of those winemakers and see what, what drove this idea. When you head into your local bottle to grab your favourite wines, you probably don't overthink the fact that most of the wines you see have a screw cap. But in the early 2000s, cork dominated the tops of bottles and screw caps were known as a trialled but failed experiment. However, all that was set to change after 14 winemakers from the Clare Valley met in a pub one night. Andrew Hardy explains. The, the cork taint problem in world wine, but especially in Australian wine at the time, was huge. And through the 90s, we were paying a lot of money for what was supposed to be very good corks, and they were not. And we were getting huge cork taint problems. The winemakers in Clare gang of us got together and, and we started talking about doing screw caps. Remembering that screw caps had been done before in the um, late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't brand new technology. But it, it fell foul of uh, people didn't like it back then in the 70s. It was not received well back then. We thought we could change that perception. What came after that discussion was what Mr Hardy called a media blitz. They literally hit the road to show people exactly what screw caps could do. Once the consumers started seeing it, the convenience factor came in as well. They didn't need a corkscrew anymore. But it really was, it was not at all about convenience. It was all about quality in the bottle. And, we, and you know, that's, we were able to show people. And really, we were only in the beginning of people drinking table wine in Australia. Because you know, up until the early 60s, it was a fortified industry. You know, most people drank port, beer and tea. Um, so the, you know, the wine boom hadn't, had only just really started in Australia. So I think that the learning curve was very quick. People sort of got to realise that, that it didn't taste any good, some of these wines. So they, they were more willing to change. But it, the publicity and the, and the promotion that we did was vital. You know, the whole, the whole wine world looked at what we were doing with real interest and um, as, you know, saw an opportunity. Winemaker Hilary Mitchell from Mitchell Wines recalls her family being the first to go all in, bravely bottling both their red and white wines, and she backed it completely. 
one of my first jobs actually when I was at university was doing the in-store tastings for mum and dad. So I'd go around to bottle shops and everybody would be asking like, what is this? How do you open it? <laughs> what? Isn't it just for cheap wines? And I was the face on the street <laughs> trying to explain it to the customers. But people liked the fact that they could open it quickly and easily and put the screw cap back on. And it was just those initial kind of people missing the romance of cork. But once they realised it was easier and better quality, it was a no-brainer. Heathery Mitchell credits a few things to the screw-capped shift success, among those the power of numbers and the gift of foresight. I mean, part of it was being at the, the right place at the right time. Just the world was ready. It just needed people to actually say, let's do it. And the fact that it was Clear Valley putting their premium Rieslings under screw cap was just that little push that everybody needed to go on board. Because so many other people had tried to do it and it almost sent their companies broke. I think 20 years later, I mean, some people drinking wine now probably never even had a corked wine. They don't know the world without screw cap. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't realise that it was something 20 years ago that happened in a, in a pub in Clare. I mean, it was such a great idea for the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand. Just put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could do that, only ever do that with Screwcap. Managing Director of Taylor Wines, Mitchell Taylor, calls that night at the Rising Sun Hotel a meeting of the minds. Oh, globally, I think we were really the ones that, that drove the initiative. Uh, we were pivotal for making it a success. And as soon as we could prove that success, the rest of the wine world really embraced it. A lot of the large UK supermarkets were sick of having customer complaints regularly about cork. And so all of a sudden we eliminated all the wastage and, and all the customer complaints. Um, other regions around the world started to copy us, the New Zealand winemakers. They, they followed shortly after the Clare Valley winemakers. So, yeah, we were really instrumental in making this a great success around the world. Tony Battaline, CEO of Australia Grape and Wine, says that although there was some hesitancy in the beginning, the Clare Valley's influence on the global shift was immense. Well, what we were concerned about was the fact that consumers wouldn't accept wine under screw cap. We thought that people liked the sound of the cork coming out and the theatre of a cork being taken out of the bottle. So it, that, after that initial trial, I guess, from the, the, the Clare Valley, it started to get adopted around the world. And what we found was consumers actually liked it. It was convenient. And that was really important in that you didn't have to have a corkscrew in your back pocket. So uh, it was a gradual thing. But now with probably 98% of wine in Australia is produced under screw cap. I, I, think, I think absolutely we were the leaders in it. And because Australia went to screw cap so quickly, because of the quality aspect and because we exported a lot to markets like the United Kingdom back back then and the United States in particular, those two markets started to adopt this. Then everyone else saw that it was working because those consumers would, would try, take it. So I think our influence was the pathfinder was immense. 
Outgoing Australian Grape and Wine CEO Tony Badalane ending that report by Dimitri Panagiotaris. I think I'm showing my age a little here when I say that, uh, and the fact that perhaps I drink a more white than red, that I barely remember using a corkscrew. And I know plenty of people who actually wouldn't have a clue how to use a corkscrew. So it certainly has become ubiquitous. Uh, Trevor from the Air Peninsula has uh, said that Yolumba wines use corkscrews on their white wine around uh, 1970s and the convenience and guarantee not to be spoiled won me over them, just surprised it took so long for the rest of the industry to get onto it. Chris from uh, Surrey Hills in Sydney listening into the show. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, text in to say, once we were banned from taking corkscrews in carry-on, screw, cops, screw, screw caps became my best friend. There you go. I don't think you can take anyone onto a flight now, can you? Just buy it there. And uh, another text, screw caps are great, much better than throwing out one bottle in 12 due to cork taint. I'd love to get your thoughts on on the change and and what you notice. Text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one, or you can call in on one three hundred triple two eight nine one. The way Andrew has. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. I have a winery in the Adelaide Hills uh, where I changed from cork to Stelvin in about two thousand four, I think. As I'm opening up my old bottles now, museum bottles, I'm finding anything pre two thousand four with cork very dodgy and in all sorts of areas uh, cork taint one but also mainly the cork disintegrating and while the wines under Stelvin are, are beautiful they they age so much better they don't have that uh, off flavor i used to do my own marketing too and i got sick to death of going to restaurants on the east coast and um the sommelier saying look come and grab your your bad bottles and the cupboards be full of wine that customers have given back to the restaurant. None of that happened after 2004, and I paid the top price for the court. And um, I, I consider that uh, any idea of using cork is <laughs> is so dodgy. For example, I think my personal worst example was I took a bottle of 71 Grange in for that uh, Penfolds uh, re-corking if it's if it's top quality wine, they test it and recork it. Um, yes, it turned out to be a very good bottle. They recorked it, and six months later, I opened it, and it was bad and gone. <laughs> just, oh, that's just, terrible. <laughs> oh, it was shocking. But there so, is still a well, romance around the cork, though, isn't there? Even even if it isn't sorry? as practical. There's still a romance around the cork, though, even if it isn't as practical in, in some senses. Oh, well, the trouble is uh, the French get all the best cork. Uh, one cork supplier, when I was at the... Uh, uh, wine show in London. I was standing next to a cork supplier that said, oh, we send all our rubbish cork out to Australia. And uh, you have a look at a, a top French cork. It's longer, it's clean, it's dense, and it's it's a lump of wood in the bottle. That's all you're putting. So you've got to get as clean a wood as possible. And uh, even though I was paying, oh, this is years ago, uh, 50 cents, 75 cents per cork, uh, these are not lasting 20 years. It's terrible. And uh, I, I, when I hear people talking about the romance of cork, suddenly the Chinese that think they're drinking French wine that really want the cork. So uh, I, I get annoyed when I see people <laughs> talking about using cork again. Well, I've had too many bad examples. I it sounds like a, you're not alone, though. It sounds like a, a few people have uh, because uh, they've been pretty keen on the uptake of, of these screw caps. Thanks so much for calling in, Andrew. 
Uh, thank you. Bob from uh, the Inman Valley has, has called in. Good afternoon, Bob. Hey. Hello. Hi, Cathy. How are you going? Um, this is my first time caller to you, but well well known in the rest of the field. Well, welcome to the Country Hour. Um, I have discovered the GPSA playlist. Oh, you're not talking about Cork? We're talking about the Harvest 100? No, no, I'm not talking about Harvest 100. I'm sorry. They said I oh, will just... Stay on hold and Cassie will talk to you. Um, (laughs) I got it the other day and I work in a kitchen and there are two of us and I've put put the playlist on and we're singing away like you wouldn't believe. And there's young people and old people in the kitchen and we all know the songs. And it's fabulous to have, you know, Slim Dusty and the the Hilltop Hoods and and Midnight Oil and, and it's just a... The best playlist I've ever heard. Well, that is wonderful. It was voted on by people, so it is a, a popular choice um, playlist. So I'm glad it is popular by your standards too. It, it well, is quite a good thing, listen. The best thing is, being a country girl, I can imagine the young boys on the harvesters singing along. And that just makes me feel happy that they've got something that they can relate to and all be doing the same thing. And you can bop along with them. Yeah, in the kitchen. <laughs> Thanks so much for calling okay. in, Bob. Well done, Cassie. Bye. Uh, that was Bob calling in about the Harvest 100 playlist. We did play the uh, <laughs> the top song. It was Driving Wheel by uh, Jimmy Barnes, so you can check that out on Spotify. I think you've got to go to the GPSA website, but you can get it on Spotify as well. Uh, another text on the uh, screw top lids for wine bottles. The initial screw caps back in the 70s were only used on cheap wine, hence why it wasn't taken up until the Clare Valley winemakers went back to it much later. That's from Sam. Thanks so much for uh, that text. Sam, do keep the conversation coming up. I'd love to know about dinner parties and things like that, how they changed when screw caps really came in. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1-300-222-891. It's a quarter to one. This week on Landline, as China turns away from Australian wine, India is shaping up. It definitely is a market that Australian producers are looking to invest in, um, particularly once the free trade agreement comes into force. And boot-scooting life back into WA's small halls. Those town halls, there's just so much heritage in them and so much feeling. That's Landline Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. The, the screw cap movement, Peter from Stathalbyn says credit for the screw cap should be given to Peter Wall of Your Lumber, who have... Uh, that might be uh, Yolumba, who was the original champion. Thanks uh, so much for texting in there, Peter. And Jim's called in. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Cassie. Uh, Cassie, I, I think the, the movement towards uh, screw caps has just been marvellous. Uh, the Sporting Car Club of South Australia is presently dealing with hundreds of bottles of wine that we inherited, and they're all they're 25 years old, cool climate Shiraz, and every cork that I've taken out, uh, has has broken the wines mostly is okay, but some some are cork. But the corks are such a struggle to get out that the uh, club members have you know had difficulty dealing with the wine and and uh, have resisted it. Yeah, because you got to sort of almost dig them out and it ends up in the wine anyway when they get all, all sort of ruined well, like well, that as got, well. Then you've got to get you know you've got to go to the trouble of when you have to filter the wine and never mind decanting it. But uh, certainly they're, they're no asset um, <clears throat> if you want to age the wine for any length of time at all. 
Well, it seems like, yeah, a lot of support here. And South Australia, while uh, some texts have pointed out that South Australia didn't come up with the idea, the Clare Valley winemakers were ones who drove it. So South Australia has a bit of a claim to fame when it comes to that. Thanks so much for your call. That was Jim from Coorong. And we'll move on now to some other topics. Yesterday, if you were listening to the program, you might have heard that Saputo, the dairy giant, has announced that it will be shutting the cheese packing operations at Malel in the southeast. Now, a dairy farmer from that point of the world is disappointed to hear the news. Uh, the, the company announced plans to scale back its Australian operations, including the Malel cheese factory, due to declining milk supply with the changes taking effect in the first months of of next year. Graham Hamilton is that dairy farmer and he says it's important to have competition in the dairy industry. We're always disappointed when there's a contraction of of processing and to lose uh, the cheese cutting and packaging at Malel is is, um, disappointing. Um, I'm hopeful that the milk logistics centre at Malel will continue to be there because uh, everybody in the district is sort of using that in one way or the other for getting milk uh, shipped off. Probably we're just re- really disappointed that Saputo came in, it seems like, 10 years ago with a lot of fanfare and, and now they uh, appear to be exiting the industry. Of course, we're only talking at this stage about their processing works and we have no idea what's to become of their uh, milk suppliers their farmer suppliers, and so that's a probably more direct interest. We do not uh, supply Saputo ourselves, but of course competition in the industry is of vital importance to all of us. The Mafra plant was a big plant in its day and also was Leongatha. I think they're still going to continue doing some work at Leongatha, but I think, yeah, it's always disappointing when there's a contraction. Um, there's a fair bit of demand for milk at the moment, so it might get placed reasonably quickly, I hope, but I hope it doesn't cause any uh, indigestion in the um, in the raw milk supply part of the supply chain. And how big of a player are they in the southeast? Uh, that's difficult to tell because many, many people that were supplying them, including us for a while, have, have left and found uh, more lucrative places to fill their milk. I'm unsure how many people are left their trucks uh, definitely are here and definitely doing the logistics, the milk logistics. But uh, actually, how many suppliers they've got, I'm fairly uncertain. And they said that they've been scaling back their operations due to declining milk supply. Is that something that everyone's experiencing? Yeah, there's strong demand everywhere. Uh, I've heard that also of their um, Allensford plant, but I can't, uh, I can't verify that. But in some ways, Pudo has become a bit uncompetitive in their pricing as well. Uh, so they haven't been attracting a lot of new supply that I know of anyway. And why is it important to have like multiple facilities? Like, why is that competition important? <laughs> competition drives milk price. Uh, it's, it's a pretty simple equation. Uh, and the more demand there is for the milk, the more products that are being made and the more markets that are found, then that, that drives um, milk price. It, it's, not, uh, it's not rocket science, really. South East dairy farmer Graham Hamilton speaking with Jack Evans there. Uh, we've got some more texts coming through on the corkscrew. Uh, you need to use two finer corkscrews to get the uh, crumbly corks out of bottles. Thanks for that, Sam. Appreciate that. And uh, Andrew says that uh, the only good cork is from a, a 
company that uses uh, reconstituted cork, one that's been crushed, treated and reformed. All top sparkling wine uses them. So uh, that's uh, an interesting insight too. Thanks for that, Andrew. Now, uh, you might remember yesterday we were talking about the uh, stocks report that was done on Snapper. It seems like the decline has stopped, but they're not really breeding up. But a York Peninsula charter boat operator says uh, although lifting the ban on, on snapper fishing would benefit his business, he supports keeping the restrictions in place until the population increases. Now, uh, this work by Desadi revealed that the snapper numbers in the Spencer Gulf, Gulf St Vincent and West Coast still remain depleted despite the ban that's been in place since November 2019. Marion Bay's Reef Encounters fishing charter owner, Ryan Vallette, says... Uh, that waiting until socks are sustainable will lead to better outcomes long-term. I wasn't entirely sure what they were going to come back with. I didn't have any sort of expectations, but I'm not surprised that the stocks are still depleted to a point. I didn't think that they, were, uh, that they would be as heavily depleted as, as they're saying they still are. But, yes, I, I mean, they've done the science. They're showing that it's still depleted and... Um, Look, if it's measures that need to be still be taken to ensure that you know the recruitment of snapper is supported for a while longer yet, then I mean, uh, I guess we have to be taking their word for it. Um, I'm no scientist, and I, I know a lot of people are relying on them to make the right decision. In your experience, though, obviously you're always out on the waters. Is there snapper out there? Look, I am on the water a lot. There are a lot of snapper out there in, in the water. The fishery that I have access to is quite different to uh, a lot of the other areas in the state. Uh, each are different to each other. So when I speak for mine, I don't speak for all of them. Um, but I would say that, yes, our catches of snapper are quite high. So obviously we find ourselves releasing a lot of, of snapper as, as we go throughout the day. Um, we, we tend to try and move away from those areas sometimes. Um, I am noticing them in a lot of areas at the moment, but that doesn't as I say, speak for the biomass over the entire state. Obviously, there's some critical areas there that still need to be protected that they've outlined. Do these figures indicate the likelihood of the ban being lifted anytime soon? I know it was hoped it might be lifted in February. Look, I mean, even the report says that they can't see a um, a time at which maybe the biomass might recover to a, an appropriate level. So, I mean, for me to make a comment on when it should open isn't really my place. But um, what what I can say is that, you know, we would all like it to open. I'd like it to open. It's only going to help our, our business. Um, but for the good of the fishery, if the snapper fishery needs to remain closed and uh, until we can consider it sustainable, then, I mean... My own, my business is only as good for as long as, you know, I can catch these fish species. So, you know, I've got to look into the future a bit there and go, well, if, if it's for the greater good of the fishery, that's what we need to be supporting. So it indicates at the moment that I think they won't be opening it based on what the report says. And, um, yeah, it'd be a bit contradictory to what, what they've sort of put forward if, if we decided to open it um, with full force again. Have you lost business since the ban was put in place in November 2019? Look, there's absolutely no doubt that um, it's impacted business. Uh, I've recently taken it over. I actually recently took over the business um, whilst the snapper ban was underway. So, look, in discussions with the previous owners, it's obviously impacted 
the business in a way that, you know, people that are specifically targeting snapper, we can't, you know, promise them that, that we can take them out and target those species. We are, however, lucky that we have a, a large variety of species we can still target in the area that we fish, so we're grateful for that. But, yeah, look, I, I can't see why our business wouldn't increase when the snapper are open. Is there anything you would like to see? I know Wreckfish were calling for maybe an allowable catch. Do you think that could be an answer? I definitely think that that could be an answer, yes. So regardless of whether you know the fishery is or isn't opened in the coming January, the management of the fishery needs to change. That's something I have absolutely no doubt about. Even if we do you know, hold out and keep this ban on for another few years and, and the snapping fishery does return to its former glory, there's absolutely no way we should proceed the way we did prior to the ban. The impact on the fishery with the management that was in place obviously drove it to the point, the depleted point that it is, so that needs to be very seriously reviewed. Yeah, so do you think the ban was put in too late? Stocks had already depleted? Absolutely. I truly believe that had the problem actually been addressed properly earlier, um, we would have never we quite possibly wouldn't have seen ourselves in the position where we'd had to have a full ban on the species. For too many years, it got left unattended, the fact that, you know, these fish were being completely and totally overfished, especially in the areas that they congregate and migrate to breed. Marion Bay's Reef Encounters Fishing Charter owner, Ryan Valente, speaking with Bethany Alderson. A couple of texts in on this. John says, don't blame the, the low fish stocks. When I go fishing, I just seem to feed the fish. I think I'm a bit like that too, John. I'm not a very good fisherwoman. Uh, and uh, Mark from Cape Jervis wants to ban long lines for snapper fishing. And Mal has called in to say a man of his fish is out of Port Augusta and he says there are snapper everywhere and he has to throw so many back. Well, that is some good news as well. Also on the topic we've been chatting about today with relation to the screw cap movement, uh, Tony Cleary says that... um uh, the, uh, talk to Mark Maxwell at Maxwell Wines. He bottled the 2004 vintage using cork, plastic cork, and uh, steals them to enable comparison. Good time to revisit how the techniques are going. It would be. Thanks for that uh, tip there, Terry from Glenalta. My friend Caroline Winter is here. She doesn't mind a glass of wine occasionally. What do you make of the, the screw cap? I do not uh, mind a glass of wine. Look, I think we've we've become really accustomed to them now. I actually can't really remember. I, I mean, I know how to open it, but I don't remember really having to do it in earnest. I did work in a bar and had to know how to do it there. Oh, that would take extra time than just you know taking yeah. the screw top off. Well, look, I look, I you know I haven't had a bad bottle of wine under a screw top, but I also uh, have a couple of wineries that I'm really fond of, and one in particular who swears by cork, and they've never gone to screw cap and say that they never will, but they say that. Uh, uh, sourcing their cork from uh, overseas, which is where they get it from, and I just can't remember exactly where, and it's of the highest quality, they say makes all the difference. So they, they stick with cork and uh, their wines are very good. So um, there is a bit of romance, though. I did say that. pulling the cork out, isn't there? <laughs> there is. You do enjoy the, the pop, and I guess you still have it with champagne. You do. I don't, I don't know how you'd go. I don't think I've ever had a screwed cup. Champagne, you just wouldn't, no. wouldn't have the same seen, effect, I can't imagine. I've seen fizz with uh, those pop tops, you know, like oh, yes, on yeah. the top of beer bottles. Uh, but that always scares me a little bit. <laughs> like, 
Um, <laughs> what good sound effect. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> What's coming up this afternoon? <laughs> we've uh, Look, we've got a, a lot on the program. Of course, we are going to uh, follow child protection and look at ways that we can break the cycle, which really is the big question around this one, uh, obviously, today. We're also going to take a look at how your mood changes with the weather. Does your mood change with the weather, Cass? Yeah, I hate the cold, so mm. I just like it to be warm, really. <laughs> and I love rain. I grew up with um, on a farm and my father was always much happier when it was raining. <laughs> maybe not this much rain, but uh, where he is at the moment. But um, yeah, So maybe I'm more influenced by him, but I get happy when it rains. Oh, my goodness, you are an odd one, <laughs> but we love you. Um, so we're going to take a look at how your mood changes, and it's not just when it's cold. We often hear about Seasonally sad. Affected, That's sorry. right, but it can be actually any season. And one psychologist is uh, talking about how our national mood has changed because obviously we're having such varied weather right from the East Coast all the way across. So we'll be uh, chatting about that. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. Caroline Winter has some interesting stuff coming up as we approach one o'clock. There are so many ways to keep informed. State heritage listing does provide some important protection. It doesn't prevent any development on the parkland. Leading news and current affairs. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.